0: Welcome to the Raw and Wild Hearts, a place where the raw, the unfiltered, the wild hearts gather to celebrate triumphs and hardships, learn from each other, grow together, and break down a culture rooted in fear. We will talk, we will laugh, and we will lean on each other about everyday life experiences that we could all use a little support through, and then we'll bask in the wild, magical beings that we are. My philosophy is that by embracing the dark, we may just let in the light. I am your host, Lori Rising, healer, educator, writer, adventurer, retreat leader, birth defender, and animal enthusiast and activist. Along with my wild heart sidekick kitty, Jesus the Brave, we'd like to invite you to get excited about the wild heart revolution. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. It's called From Childhood Abuse to Living Unbroken with Michael Anthony. We take a deep dive into his life story of surviving childhood abuse and trauma into eventually thriving in adulthood with accountability and intention. His story and mission are so compelling y'all. I feel really honored to share it with you. You're not going to want to miss this. He is now talking about his experience through speaking engagements and mentoring survivors of child abuse to create profound change in this world. We move through his journey of moving out of survival from a trauma-filled past into thriving as an adult. We learn about what Think Unbroken means to him and how he began a very deep healing process through accountability, as well as what he was willing to do to create the life that he now has. We'll also touch on the profound invitation that COVID and quarantine has given us all to drop into our personal abilities and on his open letters to America about racism. We examine our society in relation to being proactive versus reactive. And in the end, Michael leaves us with some wonderful words of wisdom about how to empower yourself in trauma work with a declaration of health. What an inspiration Michael is. I am so excited for this episode. I also want to sincerely thank you for your continued support. I do not take it for granted, and I hope that you're resonating with our wild heart revolution. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or iTunes and you have a minute or two, please subscribe, star rate, and review the show. It's how to get the conversations in the ears of others, as well as when you just plain share it with your communities. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Also, if you listen on another podcast platform and you're able to subscribe, that would be rad as well. There's a lot of great content in the past episodes. People are really loving the latest episode called A Critical Conversation about racial profiling and police reform. Although this sound really hurts my soul, I, my deepest apologies for that. These Zoom calls are pretty tough to navigate sound-wise, and eventually I hope to purchase a much better audio editing program but thank you for sticking with me for now oh and guess who's coming back molly mccord yes my spiritual crush is coming back she's our favorite intuitive astrologer and she's gonna do a 2020 progress report with all of these intense energies so stay tuned for that it's gonna be big um happy full moon too this episode's coming out the day after the full moon so i hope you're getting some good intentions out there for your life for our country and for our world and now on to the show michael anthony is the author of the best-selling book think unbroken and is a coach mentor and advocate for adult survivors of child abuse Michael spends his time helping other survivors get out of the vortex to become the hero of their own story and take their lives back. Michael hosts the Michael Unbroken podcast and blogs weekly at thinkunbroken.com. Please welcome Michael Anthony. Hello, Michael. Thank you for joining the Wild Heart Revolution.
1: Hi, good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited.
0: I'm excited too. This this has kind of come about pretty quickly and it's unfolded in a beautiful way. So I do like to start with a toaster or a prayer to the wild heart warriors in our light, especially our dark, and in all of our magic and glory. May we continue to elevate consciousness through honesty, humor, humility, gentle care, soul wrenching growth and ownership, and to us and to thinking and being unbroken.
1: Beautiful. Thank you. Cheers.
0: I have a water cheers today. It changes throughout the day. It can be water, tea, or wine. You never Mm. know what it's going to be. Totally. Um, Michael, yes, thank you so much. I just got a hold of you not very long ago, and you responded, and here we are. I think you came through my feed under a hashtag, a PDX hashtag, Mm, and we're both podcasters. So I started checking you out on the Instagram and listening to your podcast. And just really wanted to talk to you. My gosh, your journey has been one of great intensity. As you heard from his bio, he is the author of Think Unbroken. And if you wanted to just give us a quick background, I know it's not quick, but uh, we have so much to talk about today. And just tell us a little bit about your journey and, and what brought you here and, and how, you, how you came to be where you're helping so many people on their path of healing and um, becoming unbroken.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I'll give you the elevator pitch. To go into it would literally take hours. We'd be here all day. The high level, which is still kind of long, is this. I grew up in the Midwest in Indianapolis. My mother was a drug addict and alcoholic. Um, She actually cut my finger off when I was four years old. Um, So a lot of trauma, a lot of abuse happening there. My stepfather, the man she married when I was six, was pretty much the stepfather from hell that you pray you never have hyper abusive, really intense environment. And, you know, we grew up in poverty. I grew up living in multiple homes, multiple times of being in and out of care of strangers and people like that, while also growing up in the Mormon church. So now you have this added layer there. By the time I'm 12, my grandmother adopts me because I put a restraining order on my mother and my stepfather because of all the violence happening and I knew I needed to escape. And so this creates this really crazy juxtaposition and rift in our family. I'm biracial and my grandmother is a really old racist white lady from Tennessee who had never seen a person of color until she was in her late 20s. So this weird juxtaposition is happening. I'm going through this identity crisis while also you know, doing what you have to do to survive where I come from. And that's selling drugs and breaking in houses and stealing cars and running with guns and doing a lot of really bad stuff. I don't graduate high school on time. I find myself right after somehow understanding how to get into corporate America by the time I'm 20 I'm working I'm working for a fortune 50 company which is almost impossible in its own feet and slowly that kind of exacerbates the problems of my life so I get further into drinking and smoking and alcohol and sex and drugs and all of these things and suddenly I come to the realization I'm 26 years old, I'm 350 pounds, I'm smoking two packs a day, I've ruined every relationship and friendship in my life. And I had this really pivotal moment where I'd come to the realization that if I didn't change, I was going to die. I call that my mirror moment, because it was really this interesting, reflective moment where I I did something I'd never done before. And I really looked at who I was and what I wanted out of my life. Fast forward a bunch of years later, here I am talking to you. In this journey, I slowly started educating myself about understanding trauma, about understanding abuse, about understanding mindset and habits and goals and how to work through the chaos of one's life. I put that out there in the world a little bit. I shared a blog here, I post here, some information there. And slowly it started turning into what it is now, where I coach, I mentor adult survivors of child abuse. I speak internationally. I've hosted workshops in Bali and Singapore and London and around the country and around the world. Um, And then I wrote Think Unbroken, which is a guide and a companion for other adult survivors of child abuse. For people like me, when we started our journey, we had no idea what we really needed to do to heal. And that was kind of why I wrote that book as, as a companion, as a mindset, and as a practical guide. And so it's just kind of turned into this thing that if you would have asked me eight years ago, would I be having this conversation with you, I'd say no. And so I just do what I think is really important and that's listen to the universe and follow the cues.
0: Wow. Oh, my gosh. I feel like there's so much to break down in there. I've been listening to you a lot for the last few days, and I just listened to your really powerful interview with uh, what is his name? Nathan. Mm -hmm. uh, Spiteri. Spiteri, Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm just I'm still kind of reeling from from everything that both of you talked about. So let's first talk about Think I'm Broken, the book that you wrote. Tell me in your words, what what is Think Unbroken? Those two words are really powerful together. So I'd like yeah. to hear where you came up with those and how they came to be.
1: So it's really interesting because I had originally started this whole process about four years ago, as this thing called these 10 ACEs. So I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the adverse childhood experiences survey was by Dr. Fletti in the 90s. And it's about the understanding of the correlation between health issues in adults and um, adverse childhood experiences. And so the survey has 10 questions. And if you answer yes, then it correlates to certain things. And so I actually answered yes to all 10 of them, which it makes me an anomaly in itself. And I was going under that moniker for a while. and. I was seeing someone for a bit and she and I decided not to move forward in a relationship. And she said something to me that was really interesting. And she called me broken. And it was because we just did not see eye to eye on what the world meant to each other. right? And that moment, I had recognized something really important that that was not the first time anyone had called me broken. And so, you know, you track back four years and then 14 and then 20 before that, and that was always what you hear. People from the hood are broken, poor kids are broken. If they're in poverty, you're broken. If you have mental health issues, you're broken. If you've ever attempted suicide, you're broken. Like this goes on and on and on. It is just this natural part of the ecosystem of the way that, especially in Western society, uh, people view each other. You go, oh, if you're not in copacetic and in line with everyone's else opinions and thoughts of the way the world should be, you're automatically labeled as broken. And so this night I'm laying in bed and where most of my great thoughts come at three o'clock in the morning when I can't sleep, I was like, this isn't who I am. I've never felt broken. I have felt misunderstood. I have felt like I needed to gain worthiness and self-compassion and love and care. I've always felt like I needed someone to be able to be there with me. Sometimes I feel like I just need a hug, but I never felt broken. And then it was like, oh, I don't think that way. I don't think that way. And then it just hit me like lightning. It was like, think unbroken. Because that's what it is. That's what this whole thing is about. Everything that you do in life is a mindset. Everything we do in life is a choice and decisions. And all of that lies within A, where we begin with ourselves, and then B, the actions that we put behind it. And it slowly has turned into this thing where it's like, okay, now I understand what think unbroken means for me. And I was doing a lot of talking. I was doing a lot of hosting and and workshops and webinars and things like that. And I had people reach out to me and be like, you should write a book. And it was nowhere on my radar, right? I barely have a high school education. Like I didn't even graduate on time, right? So how am I going to write a book? And I was sitting down to write a blog post i was like i'm gonna make a really long blog post and just kind of cover the high level of the things that i believe are the most pertinent ideas and concepts that i've discovered throughout my self-education on healing and understanding trauma well that 2000 word blog post turned into a 55,000 word book because I recognized, like in writing that there was no way that I could do two things. One, give people the tools that they actually needed to understand and two, create the platform in which people can reflect externally, right? To take what they have inside and to put it somewhere. And so, Think Unbroken is actually this companion, whereas it is the concepts and tools that I've discovered, right? Not many of which I've created, though there are a couple. It's really based in the science and understanding of mindset and trauma, and then it's a practical workbook where you literally, I design these concepts where you have to write in it. It is a thing that you do because I don't think that Think Unbroken is just this highfalutin idea that exists up here. Like it is an actual practice. So that's how that came to be.
0: And is that, did you do that practice as you were healing from your trauma and making such big life shifts and changes?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so much of it was things that I had conceptualized from experience, right? Because I I didn't write this book until I was deep into my healing process and had over and and move through and overcome a lot of the things that had happened. Like I'd already been coaching, I'd already been hosting workshops, and I had created, basically here's what I did. I created a five day in-person workshop that was built in this workbook that I created that's hundreds of pages long. That is kind of like this thing where you really extrapolate all the ideas and concepts that you have of yourself and put on paper because I believe that until you actually write stuff, it doesn't actually mean it's true, it doesn't mean it's real, it just kind of sits there. And so I took what I felt like were the most important questions that we have to ask ourselves and the most important um, exercises that I created and I put them into that book. But it's all experiential based on my history, based on the things that I've done. So it was me kind of reflecting at, from my perspective, what were the most important things in my life that created change and that could have been stuff there's some stuff in there i did eight years ago right and there's some stuff that i did as recently as three years ago um and so and that will always change that will always grow and now i'm writing the 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 companion companion to this book because i recognize like even though it is this really in-depth book there's so much more we can get into
0: yeah, I really like that on your website um, where you said, I'm a product of my product. Yeah. You know, because I feel like a lot of us get into our careers because of our experience and the empathy that we have in the situations that we've been through. You know, that's definitely where I've been led in my career as well. So, yeah, like if we talk about, I, I kind of want to go back to that moment. Would you say it was like you hit a rock bottom where you were like, I can't live? This life anymore?
1: Yeah, I. I mean, I'd been at rock bottom. I'd been at rock bottom for probably three years at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, It was a, an accumulation of multiple moments that had led me into that that awakening, for lack of a better term. Right. I mean, I was in this position where, at the time, I was an award winning international wedding photographer, and and I was living this. Faux life where I have multiple girlfriends that don't know about each other. I'm getting drunk every day. I'm getting, I'm literally getting high from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed because I just needed to turn off everything. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and like realistically, as a kid, like I started getting stoned when I was 12 years old because I thought it was fun. And you don't recognize that as a child, that's a coping mechanism. Right. Mm-hmm. And I realized that now looking back, of course, I'm like, oh, I was solving all of the damage. And that was the way that I knew how to do it. And so I'm in this position, in this place where my businesses are growing. They're great. I'm doing really well. And my life, the thing that actually matters was a disaster. It was falling apart. It was crumbling upon itself. And so this one particular morning, I'm getting ready to go and do a wedding expo. And this' where you go show your photos and your albums and start booking out clients for the coming years. And I, the night before, I got so incredibly fucking drunk. It was ridiculous. And I was like, oh, this is just kind of the path I'm always on, right? Salving, like putting a cover over all the things I hadn't dealt with. And that morning, I'm buttoning up a size 4XL shirt and size 47 pants. And I look in the mirror and I'm just like, I... Don't know who this person is. And I realized I had broken a promise that I had made to myself as a child that I would never put myself in a position to not move towards the things that I wanted in life. And I had done exactly that. I had said when I was a kid, I'm going to chase money and success because that is the solution for poverty. Mm. What I didn't realize is that's not true, right? money doesn't fix anything if you still have a lot of work to do money and and people always say this and i don't think you recognize it until it happens money can make you better or it can make you worse because it brings out the parts of you that already exist and so i went from this being impoverished kid to this man who now had a, a, a income stream that meant i could do pretty much whatever i want because i built my businesses in my life to do that but as I sat and I looked in that mirror, I'd realized, oh, I had built the wrong things. I'd built the wrong part of myself because it wasn't true of who I needed to be. It was this fictitious idea of a solution to what I thought was a problem. Not recognizing what the problem was is that I had a really, really, really bad first 19 years of life and I needed to do work.
0: Yeah, so... Um... Was that what was your first step kind of like seeking out trauma therapy? Like, did you know that was one of the keys to shifting your life? Or I I just kind of want to talk to talk about your your process of what you found that really started opening up and working with the trauma in your past.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I had started going to therapy at seven years old, mm. right? Because of okay. trauma, because of being molested as a child, there was a lot of darkness that started. And so I had been going to therapy off and on since I was a little kid. And in my 20s, in my early 20s, I went to therapy because it was like the cool thing to do. Um, <laughs> and I would go in this, I'd go to my therapist's office and I'd pay them $150 and I would tell them everything I thought they wanted to hear. So they'd go, you're making progress. And I'd be like, okay, <laughs> this is how it works. What happened when I had this moment, I had this recognition was I had to do something that I had never done before, and that was to be accountable for myself. And in that accountability meant that if I were going to step into creating self-responsibility and ownership and going down a path of healing, that I was going to have to do it in an intentional manner. And so it started with, because I am analytical by nature with a lot of research and I kind of just started diving into literature and I started reading psychology books and I started going to yoga, which at this point was super important. You're talking a decade ago, men did not do yoga 10 years ago. And so I would walk into these these yoga studios and I'd be the only dude in there and, and I'm in like super overweight and I'm very over shape, out of shape and self-conscious, but I pushed myself through it anyway because I had to ask myself the question, what was I willing to do to create the life that I wanted to have? And that was stepping into things that were uncomfortable. And so I kind of had laid out this game plan to an extent where I was like, okay, I'm going to get serious about therapy, meaning A, when I go to my fucking therapist, I'm going to talk about dark stuff, which meant I actually had to get a different therapist because I didn't, part of the reason why I didn't talk and speak honestly with my previous therapist, because I couldn't relate. His life experiences were nothing like my life experiences. So we, we couldn't connect. And so that was the first thing I did. I booted that dude and I started the process of getting another one. I started eating better. I quit smoking, right? Because I recognize like, oh, I had tried to quit smoking. I'm doing air quotes if you're listening to this. I tried <laughs> to quit smoking so many times, right? Because I know smoking is bad for you, but i never made a decision that I was going to quit smoking. And so one day I was like, I'm done. And I decided that I wanted to quit drinking the way I was. I never felt like an alcoholic, but I did feel like I was drinking to soothe the world because it was really dark and fucking painful for me. And so, as I stepped further into therapy, into yoga, I began journaling. And it was just a place for me to get my thoughts out. And so, that was a couple of years after I had this mirror moment. And as I was edging into 30, um, I recognized that I had to leave Indiana because I was being triggered all of the time. And this was like five years ago. And I'm like, the word triggered had just kind of started being a thing. And I was like, who gets triggered? That's bullshit, right? That's my mentality at the time. Not recognizing that, yes, that's me all the time. Certain streets, certain smells, certain people I run into send me spiraling. And one morning, I walk into my apartment and I was living with my partner at the time. And I told her, I said, I'm leaving Indiana and you can't come with me. And I packed all my stuff and I left and I just needed to go and find whatever the hell it was that was out in the world that I was supposed to find. And I ended up getting into this place where I was like, okay, what I actually need is I need to be a part of men's group therapy for child abuse survivors. Mm
0: -hmm. I don't
1: know why my brain just told me that's the thing to do. And so I sought it out and I found it and I went and enjoyed it. And then I started doing, all the therapies, EMDR, and, and cognitive behavioral therapy, and gestalt therapy. And I spent all of my savings and all of my money because I, again, had to continue to ask myself, what was I willing to do to be healthy? And then I tried other things. I, the only thing I didn't try was like electroshock therapy, but I swear to God, it was like next, right? <laughs> and, and so it was just this situation where I was slowly doing all the different things while I was trying to figure out what were the things that worked for me. And that was years and years and years and years of work. Um, And ultimately the thing that I found was all of it kind of boiled down to, to two concepts. And I call that no excuses, just results. And what that means is again, I had to come to this place where I had to take accountability and responsibility for the life that I wanted to have. Nobody, who has had traumatic experiences in life, whether they are a child or adult, is culpable for them most of the time. If something really fucking bad happens to you and it's not your fault, you have got to figure out how to not make that shame become a part of what is embedded in your soul, right? And to me, I recognize like I had all this trauma, all this abuse, I carry literal scars on my body, multiple scars, all these nightmares, all these experiences, and I recognized like, oh, the only way I'm gonna move through this is I have to get to this place where they're not my fault, where I can give myself permission to remove myself from culpability. And in doing so, what I recognized was that created accountability for the other parts of my life for going and maintaining the healthy lifestyle, for doing the things that I said I was going to do, for changing my value system, for educating myself. So it's a lot of different pieces of a puzzle that kind of start to slowly fit in with each other as you go. And the further you go and the longer you go, it's not that the puzzle ever becomes fully formed, but you get to add another piece here and another piece there.
0: Yeah. And so I'm curious, you know, because you had so many layers of trauma that you're working through as you're moving through this healing process, but did, did our culture of toxic masculinity versus healthy masculinity add another layer onto that? Because when I hear, when I heard you talking in a lot of your podcasts is like, I heard you say like you were beating your brothers up, you know, it sounded like you were really kind of embodying this this cultural constraint of masculinity that we have, you know, that I even saw a post that you put on today about male suicide. Mm-hmm. And I did a podcast about exploring masculinity and how, that actually creates an environment for more men to commit suicide because they aren't able to get in touch with those feelings or they don't feel like they can express their emotion and their trauma. So I'm just curious, did you feel like you had to go through a process with that cultural confine of masculinity as well as you were moving into your your trauma work?
1: There's layers, right? When, When I talk about the abusive past that my brothers have with each other, That was embedded and ingrained within our understanding of what communication was, right? Mm -hmm. We watched our mom beat the shit out of us. We watched our stepdad beat the shit out of us. They beat the shit out of each other. Violence was everywhere. And mm-hmm. so that's how we communicated. That's what we understood at the time. Now as adults, we have a different understanding of each other, right? We don't hit each other. We don't fight. I mean, we fight, we're brothers, we'll always fight, right? But, but there's no fist, there's no violence, there's no those things. When you come from neighborhoods like we come from and and you're embedded, there's layers, right? Because there's cultural layers within masculinity. Did you grow up in the hood or did you grow up in the suburbs, right? There's different layers of that, right? And so now with that added part and growing up and seeking identity, because I was raised by women, ultimately, I thought, what was a man? I knew being a man as this idea of chasing women, chasing money, getting cool cars, having awesome clothes, and and bragging about it to all of your friends. And so that was my only understanding of being a man. I mean, I can reflect on conversations with my core group of male friends in my early 20s. Every conversation is about getting laid. Every conversation is about money, every conversation. My ex-best friend, we knew each other for 15 years. We hugged twice. And both of those time involved death, right? And so I think about that, that lack of connection, that lack of willingness of, of men to be vulnerable because... It's, I mean, this goes so deep. I could talk about this all day. There are more layers of it, right? Because on one hand, culturally, and especially in America, men are told to, to to dust themselves off, to pick themselves off the ground, to not cry, to not be emotional. I remember going to football practice at 10 years old and getting hurt and my coach being like, men don't cry. And my stepfather hitting me so hard that I would gasp to the point that I'd pass out, followed by, if you cry, I'm going to hit you harder. I learned literally how to turn emotions off. I became a wall. And so now the actions that I had mimicked that. I had no remorse, no sympathy, no empathy for anyone or anything that I did or said, or they did or said to me because I had been trained into that. But I recognized that a big part of my humanity was missing in that, A, because I was hurting myself right? And B, because I was hurting the people around me. I was so terrified of this idea that men can have emotions because of my fear of judgment. It is not until I got to a point where I said, you know what? I refuse to be judged by you. I am going to live my life. Uh, part of that is a fuck you, right? Because you're like, I don't care what you think about me. Like, Lori, we don't know each other that well. And most people in this world don't. The reality is I don't care what you think about me. Why? Because in in here, in my soul, in my spirit, in my heart, I love exactly the person that I am. That does not mean that I don't value people's thoughts of me, especially if they're like, Michael, you're being an asshole. Please tell me let's have the conversation. Please tell me (laughs) because I do have those moments. But as a whole, until you get to this place where you devalue people's opinions of you and you step into full ownership of who you are as a man and as a human being in general, you will always stay within the status quo. And so I will sit here and watch a freaking commercial on TV. And if it's emotional enough, I'll cry. And I'm totally okay with that. 10 years ago, no. Mm -hmm. I didn't cry for 15 years of my life. Right, because that's what's taught to us, that's what's embedded. And so as I stepped through these ideas of what masculinity meant is that I had to create the identity that I chose to define based on who I wanted to be as a man. And that started with values and looking at my value system and working through the emotional traumas and putting the, again, the pieces of the puzzle together. And one of the things that happened that was really important for me is I had made that declaration, which I mentioned a moment ago, of I'm going to go and join a men's group therapy because Mm -hmm. I have been surrounded by men my entire life and I've never been emotional with any of them. Plus on top of it, the ones that I had, especially in my youth, they were abusive. So why do I trust men? Yet, I want as a man who I would consider to be a person that is always moving towards goals and always moving towards these ideas and concepts of what they want. I I had to take a step back and go, what is actually important for me as a man? Because it's definitely not the number of women I sleep with. It's definitely not the money in my bank account. It sure as fuck isn't the car that I drive. So what is it? What does being a man actually mean? And so it was just a lot of different things that had to come into play, so I could understand the cultural dynamics of, okay, this is how I grew up, this is what the expectation of men is, and then this is the life that I'm leading, but is that true of who it is that I want to be moving forward?
0: Yeah, so do you feel like that men's group was the catalyst to your uh, ability to be vulnerable like do you feel like no no, not at all no because i had
1: no because i already made the decision i had the moment that i said i was going to take therapy seriously was the moment i decided to be vulnerable the moment that i walked into my apartment and i told my partner of seven years that i was leaving I told her everything because seven years I had never told her anything about my past, which is insane, right? You you mean, she did not know me. I was terrified of judgment because that was the shame. That was the guilt that sat with me. And so when I had made that declaration to me, vulnerability became a part of who I was and sure you kind of ebb into it. It's slow process. I don't think anyone goes from never sharing emotional experience to dumping it all on the table. It doesn't work that way. But what I did do was say to myself, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going all in. What I sought out when I had joined that men's group was a better understanding of connection through with, with adult men. That's what I was seeking. I wasn't Mm -hmm. seeking vulnerability or safety because I was already good. I was already there. I already had the ability to tell my story, but what was missing was that connection.
0: Okay. Um, I've heard you talk about, and I love this book, Tara Brock's radical acceptance. Mm -hmm. I think it's such a great book. I've written a piece about humans becoming human again with COVID. It's like we have this opportunity to really drop into our adaptability and our culture does not foster that in us. Our culture mm. fosters a lot of fear and resistance. And so I kind of, I really like the title of her book as Radical Acceptance because that in itself, I think decreases that, that fear of judgment and shame as well. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, there, and her book is really special to me and it's because it demystifies this idea um, that self, self-love is a bad thing. Um, Mm. about the way that we talk about ourselves, the way we feel about ourselves, the way we present ourselves to ourselves. Um, And it's such a beautiful and powerful book. It's one of, I only recommend three books to people that it's that it's mindset by Carol Dweck and it's my book. Right. And, and, and radical acceptance to me. I was, it's funny because that you mentioned that because in that men's group, one of the men said, you need to read this book because while you have done a lot of these things, this book might actually give you a further understanding of who you are. And I was like, oh, interesting, I'll go check it out. And so I read it and I was like, oh yeah, th- this is powerful, it's potent. And, and you're absolutely right. I think now more than ever, we are in a position where we have the ability to really turn it inwards and do some really beautiful work. Because there's, while it is the most chaotic time in the history of our lives, Absolutely. right? Mm-hmm. for most of us, the vast majority, we are still safe, right? Mm-hmm. So you have time where if you choose, you can step into further understanding who you are, what you want, and what you want to create in life.
0: Well, I think it also gave us this beautiful opportunity to access health the way health was made which was internally our instinctual medical health we have gotten so far away from that with the power dynamic of our medical system that when we suddenly went to a place of the everything shutting down you can't you can no longer go to your doctor unless it's an emergency you can't even get to your acupuncturist or you know whoever's in your healthcare team and i was putting out tons of content because I was like, y'all, this is when we have this grand opportunity to get back to our internal health. Like we have such an ability to create a high vibration of health within ourselves. And so my hope is that more people are dropping into that, especially in the face of such stress, because stress is one of our biggest catalysts to um, disease. And so I heard, you know, there was so much about meditation and breath work and things like that. And I hope it really reached a lot of people because that is one of our biggest access points to health.
1: Yeah, totally. And I am such a proponent of it. Um, You know, and especially in the beginning of my healing journey, like I found meditation to be awfully uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) And now I find it to be a guide into what's next. It kind of becomes the precursor for for what it is that I want to do in my life. And it's been through meditation where I have come up with the greatest ideas that I have ever had. And that could be meditation of like taking a shower without like music on, right? Or cleaning or working out. Like there's so many different kinds of meditation. Or like this morning, I had this really beautiful idea. I was like, oh, that's how I solved this problem. This thing that I've been trying to figure out now for seven months, I figured it out this morning, finally, in this meditation that I was doing, right? And and it does give us cause to, okay, let's get on the yoga mat. Let's walk. Let's move our bodies. For a lot of people, and this is the unfortunate part of it, you're out of work. Okay, Mm -hmm. well, what can you do? And I think that it's a great opportunity to step into the things that you need and the things that you need to understand about yourself and how to become healthy and how to become a little bit more self-sufficient. I think in an over-medicated society like America, there's a lack of self-sufficiency that exists because we always want to go to what the quick solve is instead Mm -hmm. of going to the root cause of many problems. And now is a great time to be reflective and understanding who you are and how your body works and how to put yourself in a healthier position.
0: And tuning into your instinctual wisdom.
1: Yeah, 100%. 100%. Hundred percent because now I think there's a there's a big lack of distraction. You can't go to the bars, you can't go to the restaurants, you can't go to the movies, you can't go to the gym, you can't do a lot of things. But what you can do is reflect on who you are and understanding. I, I think often you know, the universe gives you signs. And for many people, myself included, right now is this beautiful opportunity to step further into the thing that I'm doing, that I crave, that I need, that I feel like is a part of me.
0: Yeah. I mean, we're really dropping into our true essence as these kind of cultural confines are breaking away because we're not in it. You know, we we are with ourselves. And I really like what you said about meditation because I really want to break that down. I think people stay away from meditation because it seems overwhelming. And it's like, I don't know how to do it. I can't turn my thoughts off. But really, if we break it down to what it is, is I've been meditating since I was a child. I would sit in a tree. I would sit in a tree for hours just sitting there. That's meditation. You know what I mean? So and you said in the shower, like I lay in my bed for probably 20 minutes every morning since COVID especially. And I just meditate while I'm laying there. So I think people, um, when they get overwhelmed, they tend to not open up to new ideas. Mm -hmm. This is our culture of resistance. And so when we just really break down what something is where you could do five minutes where you're just sitting and with no judgment, if thoughts come in, let them come in. It's OK, you know, yeah. and then if we do it again and then once you start seeing some results like you saw this morning when you had that breakthrough, congratulations, by the way, I love it when that happens, but you've got an answer to something, then we want to do it more. So when you get that positive result, then that kind of drives us to want to do that more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think you have to, you made a great point. I recall the first time I started meditating and this was, I don't know, eight years ago, probably when I decided to really step into it. Um, I, w- I started with guided meditations because my thought was, I don't know how to do this. And the, you know what the thing is, they always tell you in guided meditations, let the thoughts come mm-hmm. and then you go, oh, okay. So I just let this exist. It's called being present, right? Yeah. I think that is the thing that we lack in the society so much is this idea of presence. And it's so hard to do anything worth doing when you are constantly distracted. I don't know about you, but in my life, I cannot multitask. If I try to do any more than one thing at a time, everything around me falls apart. Right. And that's because of the lack of presence. I don't know that as human beings, we are animals that are adaptive to be efficient at multitasking. It just kind of like that has happened with the culture. And so meditation gives you, I'll speak from my perspective. Meditation has given me a beautiful understanding of who it is that I am.
0: Absolutely. I, I love that. I love talking about the way to ease into something as well. I'm just so curious I've been curious since I've been listening to your story for a while now. You already said this, but I'm going to reiterate it. You're a biracial man that grew up in a racist household with a white grandmother. Partly, yes. And also being Mormon. Mm -hmm. I mean, that sounds...
1: Insane? Yeah,
0: (laughs) I wasn't going to say that word, but I mean, it (laughs) sounds so intense. Um, Are you still in contact with your family now or what has that healing process been like from your mother to your grandmother to your brothers
1: yeah you know so my my grandmother took me when i was 12 because i put the restraining order on my mother and my stepfather, I, I told my mother because she had forced us to, you know, get an AA with her in a, and it was always kind of like this blame mentality. There's a lot of shame and embarrassment. And I looked at it. Now I can kind of go back and go, Oh, her behavior was indicative of the environment that she grew up in. Her dad hit her mom. Her dad hit her. That's generational. Why would that not continue? And so she had a lot of trauma, she had a lot of abuse and things that she needed to work through that never had happened. And so as I was in my teens, she got worse in drugs, worse on alcohol, she would disappear for weeks and months at a time on these binges and then show up. And in this time period, I had, by the time I was a junior in high school, I told my grandmother, I cannot have her in my life, she is destroying it, right, which she knew. And I got another restraining order put on my mother, this one being more permanent, and that semester, I got straight A's in high school. I have mm-hmm. I put the report card in my book because like that's that that actually happened because you remove this vortex of chaos away from you. And so you become more innately within your ability to to kind of design your life and and stay focused and do the right things. Again, it's kind of that multitasking thing, right? And so I told my mother last time I saw her. I would never talk to her again. I'd given her so many chances, right? I think that we have this really poor idea in society that we owe our parents our attention when they mm-hmm. are terrible people
0: mm-hmm. and we
1: don't. And, and that's a really crazy declaration to make as a child being 17 years old. And I knew that if I didn't do that, I would never survive. And I told her, I said, I'm never gonna talk to you again. I don't care what, I don't care about the circumstances. I've given her all the chances you could give a human being. And until the day she died, I only saw her two more times. And I did not go to the funeral. I kept to my word because that to me was my self-preservation. With my grandmother, it kind of started down that same path as well, right? So being biracial, my grandmother being this white woman we were at ends a lot, especially in my teens when I was going through an identity crisis, right? Because we're growing up in an all-Black neighborhood with this racist grandmother and, and an uncle who was also a racist and a part of the Aryan Brotherhood. And it's kind of like, we had a copy of Mein Kampf on our living room table, not as historical evidence, but as like a representation of our family. And that to me was, even being young, I'd be like, why do we have that? And so I had these spouts with my grandmother, and ultimately, as her health faded, I just removed myself. And so, yes, I lived there. I would come home, but there was no interaction. There was no, like, connection. Um, my, My brothers and I, we battled, right? That is just the nature of the environment in which we grew up in. And it took us a long time to get to the place where we are now, and that's cordial, I don't think that we will ever have the same kind of relationships that most people have. And one of my brothers, I will never talk to him again. And I accept that, it is what it is, right? And my sister, whom I love dearly, like I love my brothers as well. Let's be clear about that, I'm not showing favorites. Uh, My (laughs) sister was kind of like a mother figure to me, in a sense, when I won awards at school or was homecoming and football and basketball and wrestling and all the things that I did, she would be there. And so our relationship has always been kind of steadfast and I appreciate her so much. And, you know, even today, she's the first person to support me in whatever venture that I do. And I love my brothers and my sister dearly. And now our relationships are very different than what they used to be, but there will always be healing that has to be done.
0: Mm-hmm. And you, I don't know if I have this right, but you've never known your father, your biological father, correct? No, Nope. Okay. I have so much curiosity about the entire dynamic as you're growing up. And as you know, if you were beat by your parents, you said they were beat by their parents, it's the product of the environment, Mm -hmm. but you were able to pull yourself out of it. And I, I'm assuming your siblings were able to pull themselves out of it as well to end that cycle. I assume that's with the trauma work that you were doing, or you were able to pull yourself out earlier when you emancipated yourself from your mother.
1: Yeah, you know, I I think that I always knew that there was something off. One of the one of the benefits of being a homeless child is you get to live with a lot of people. And so I probably lived and some of them were part of the Mormon church and some were honestly just strangers. And I lived with 40 different families between 8 to 11, bouncing mm. around while my mother was in and out of rehabs or addiction facilities or whatever. And the one thing that I noticed in the vast majority of those homes, there was no violence. Okay. Kids didn't get slammed into walls and punched in the face and burned. And, and like, and so I thought about that. And I recognized that at a young age that this didn't seem right. The idea of breaking the cycle. I, I don't think that came to me until much, much later, right. As an adult. Um, but I knew that it wasn't the lifestyle that I wanted to have. And I don't, I don't know that I will ever have children. I don't think it's in my cards, personal preference. Um, But I look at the relationship that my sister and my brothers have with their children and it's very different. Mm -hmm. It's very, very different than the experience that we had growing up. And like a lot of children, or excuse me, like a lot of adults who are having children now in 2020 who are our peers are doing the same thing. Because we recognize that that shit does not make human beings. It breaks them. And so I'm so proud of the steps that people are taking as a whole, as a society to break that. And we got a lot of work ahead of us. Go go and look at the most polarizing things that I put online. Every time it's about spanking, Mm. right? And discipline and hitting children and people fight to the death when I put that stuff out there, because I am not a proponent for it. I think it's ludicrous, but some people still tooth and nail fight for it. They go, I will hit my child. And I'm like, okay, you don't understand the potential rift that you are going to cause in that human being's life around violence, around worth, around love, around compassion, around trust. Yeah. Right. So, you know, as we continue to move forward and I look at the state of, The nation as a whole, when it comes to disciplining children, we are moving into a communication based rhythm instead of a fist first, right, mentality. And that's really beautiful. So, you know, I think the cycle about breaking, and, and I would say this too, I don't know that 20 years ago we could have had this conversation because the access to information wasn't there. The research wasn't there. The, the thing that we all kind of now see being in our face every day and understanding. Here's one of the thing that's really interesting about social media. While I don't know that everyone deserves to have a platform, it does give everyone a platform and people share (laughs) stories. And one of the things that happens in those stories that people share is we create connection. And unfortunately, some of us create the connection around violence in our childhood and then we create the connection around we will not continue this. So that's one of the most beautiful things that happens right now is that connection generationally is beginning to meld and internationally too right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I have people all over the world who are in connection with me around these topics. So I think it's really very much a part of, for me, it felt innate that I would not be violent towards children as an adult. And, you know, I practice martial arts. I don't fight people. I mean, I used to when I was a kid, sure. But as an adult, I don't because I've, I understand violence in a different manner when it's for sport than when it's for discipline, right? And mm-hmm. and I don't think, I think about this a lot. And this is where I, I tend to start to fight with people and I have to kind of remove myself from conversations to remember what my goal is. People often say, well, I need to hit my child so they understand. And I'm like, okay, let's pretend we're in a business meeting and I punch you in your face because you don't like this idea. Now do you understand? <laughs>
0: Yeah. When you put it that way, <laughs> I, you know, I think when you talk to people in terms of m- greater understanding when they can be like, Oh, that doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. And then you, 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 you add in a child, you know, who hasn't been in the world th- th- for the experience that that person has. But yeah, when you said that, I was like, like I had a literal like physical reaction when you yeah. said that. So I, I love that you're, that you're putting it in those terms for people that are trying to defend that kind of action.
1: Yeah. And, and, and look, I, I realize I will always get pushed back on this. I don't imagine before I die that this will change, but I will continue to talk about it because I just think, I think that if you have to hit a child that you're missing the vote on communication and for most people, you know, you've broken their trust. Children need to be protected. Right. Mm -hmm. By parents, by adults. And and so I see that happening more in society. And it's this really awesome uprising, for lack of a better term, that's happening.
0: Yeah. And speaking of that, I would like to talk to you about something that I've listened to twice now. I don't usually listen to podcasts two times in a row, but I found this to be very moving And I'm so grateful to you for being this vulnerable about um, what's happening with racial justice. And I would love to hear your thoughts on your open letters to America because you did two of them. And I just I I, I was so excited to hear you talk about like the culture of the culture of judgment and shame and how being proactive versus reactive because we do have such a culture of reaction and you looked at your internal process with those letters and you talked about the difference between being proactive versus reactive. So I would love to hear your words, maybe if you wanted to sum it up a little, cause people probably don't know what I'm talking about right now.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, so I wrote, it's literally called an open letter to America and it's in the face of the movement that is happening right now around Black Lives Matter. And as a person of color in America, I had realized that when I, I'd written an initial letter starting with dear racist white people. And I come by this honestly because I know plenty of racist white people. I grew up in Indiana. There's Ku Klux Klan members there. I have seen cross burnings. I know what the true side, the true darkness of racism in America looks like. And I recognize that one of the things that we have to do is to educate each other. And I I wrote this open letter saying, dear racist white people, be better, learn, understand. The reason why black lives matter is the same reason that everyone's lives matter, but everyone isn't in danger every time they walk out of their home, right? You don't have the same experience as a white woman walking outside as I do as a biracial man walking outside. Every time a police officer drives by me, I am scared for my life. And that's not bullshit, that's real. I was gone. I lived in Asia. I come back just to see my friends and the first day I'm back in the city, a cop car comes by me. I literally thought I was going to have a heart attack because I hadn't had that experience in so long, right? And so I sat and I reflected on this for a little bit and I a day might have been a day and a half, two days went by and I was like, this post, this letter is not comprehensive, I have dropped the ball, I've missed my mark. Because realistically, we as a society, we have a responsibility to change this country. We have a responsibility to change the fabric of the world, especially when it comes to racism. And what you see right now is the we mentality beginning to take shape and it's fucking awesome, mm-hmm. right? There are a lot of things happening in the world in America that I think kind of bring together the point and the idea that we are changing and creating the path that we want and there are people who are in the government of this country who are going to fight to the death to keep things how they are because systemic racism is built for a purpose right Mm -hmm. it exists for a reason And as I think about that, as I think about what it means to be proactive, it's about doing the things ahead of the curve, not slamming on the brakes when you reach the stop sign, but slowing down as you're moving towards them, right? And looking at and evaluating and creating change. One of the worst things that we do is we burn down the city when someone's murdered by the police. The problem is, why are we letting the police murder people to begin with? right? Mm-hmm. And that's being proactive, is, is changing that dynamic and changing that thing and giving black people the freedoms that they, by the United States Constitution, should have. The inel- inalienable rights of being an American citizen that don't exist. It's not like black people, it's people of color in this country. And the more I think about it, it's like, what we have to have is this equilibrium based in these decisions to work together to create change. Because it's it's not us. Versus them, it's us versus us. We have let this happen as a society because we have sat by idly time and time and time and time again because it's always been too far away. It's always been LA or New York or Chicago or Detroit, but then it starts getting in our backyard and then it starts getting in our street and then it's next door and then we go, oh shit, we better do something. It's happening now. But what's different is that we're doing things ahead of it and we're trying to shape the world. I, I again, I don't know that I'll ever have, have children, but I believe that we have to put in the effort now so that our kids collectively don't have to fight this fucking battle anymore. I've been doing this since I was a kid. One of the first things I ever learned when I was a child was to never put my hands in my pocket walking around inside of a store. Mm -hmm. Why? Because somebody might call the cops on me. And the number one thing that people of color are scared are in America are the police. Mm -hmm. I don't want to explain that to my children.
0: I feel like I've kind of been preparing for this my whole life with all of the movements that are happening right now, including COVID. It's looking at the greater good. You know, I feel like I'm in my career to look at the greater good instead of just what can serve me and what can what can change in my life and how I can make my life better. I've always wanted to live in community and and, in cohesiveness and and, in, you know, a positive vibration with people. And I think that from what I'm hearing you say, I think that that's what you're getting excited about as well, is that we are finally, and it's, it's taken way too long, but we're finally starting to come together as the greater good because it takes all of us, especially white people in this move for racial justice. White people are the people that need to be educating themselves and making the change because they are the reason that racism still exists in the way that it does and it always has through our history. So I I don't know. I I really enjoyed your letter. And the thing is, I understood your letters in both ways. I understood the first one. I understand the second one because racism, everyone is racist in this country because it's literally the air we breathe. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean? It, it,
1: like I wrote it, racism as is, is American and as apple pie and fourth of July and fireworks. Yeah. I mean, when you, when I traveled the world, when I would be in Bali or Thailand or Vietnam or the Philippines or London, I felt safe. Mm. I felt safe. Like that is what people don't understand is the idea of safety does mm-hmm. not exist in America. And it's not even only for people of color. And I want to be very clear, like this is for everybody. This is a fucking police state. There are more people incarcerated in America than anywhere in the world by mm-hmm. fivefold. Yeah. I mean, it's insane to me, the country that we live in, we let it happen. Yeah. Now we have to fix our own fucking mistake. Yeah. And that's what's happening. And it's across the board and it's, it's in voting, it's in picketing, it's in protests, it's in, you know, not supporting companies and calling People out and showing it. And that's what's so beautiful about social media right now. We're gonna call you out. And I think you should be called. If you're like realistically, there are some really awful people in this country who mm-hmm. want to do really bad things to each other because mm-hmm. it's a one-up, it's an upper hand, and and it's a trickle-down effect, starting with the leadership of this country. We are in this place where now there's no you can't do these things anymore. We're gonna find out. We know about Whole Foods, right? We know about these companies. We know about the slave labor of indentured servitude from prison systems building your car. So what are we going to do about it?
0: Yeah. I want to do a shout out right now for the documentary 13th on Netflix. I feel like that should be required viewing for all white people. Um, All people, period. Yeah. There's so much information in it. I hope that we get this information and education and don't go back.
1: I agree. Because history history has once again repeated itself in this country. I don't know if you've ever read Howard Zim's A People's History of the United States. Read that book and it will change everything that you believe you understand about this country.
0: Mm, I haven't read it. Thank you for for suggesting it.
1: Yeah, it's going to take you about eight years to read because it's very <laughs> big. But I assure you, there's things in there that you don't know about that hide the real truth about the foundations of this nation. And it's always been under wraps. Right, Mm -hmm. And now what's so amazing about information and technology is that the government can no longer hide the real truths and secrets of this society from us. Well, at least what we know of anyway.
0: Right. Well, and I I think there's a lot of cracks opening up for us. So I hope that we all stay diligent and stay aware and keep fighting the good fight and um, keep those cracks getting bigger. Um, so that we decrease those lower frequencies of power and greed in this country and um, make it better for everybody equally under all laws and all love for our yeah. communities. Um, listen, I, we've got to wrap up pretty soon, um, but I do have my last question for you. And I also just kind of wanted to ask if there's any tidbits of wisdom or experience you want to share with people that might be listening to your story and having an aha moment of like, oh, this this might be why I'm going down this path. Or, you know, I do have a lot of trauma in my life. I don't even know how to start unfolding that. Any last thoughts?
1: Yeah, I, I think the most important thing that you have to do is you have to make a declaration that you're going to do whatever it takes to get healthy. And healthy is subjective. It doesn't mean for me what it means for you. And so you have to figure that out. And you have to put yourself into a position of of an unbelievable level of accountability in which you've never experienced in order for change to take place. We, we live in such a quick fix society, again, pointing to pharmaceuticals and quick fixes and ideals and saying that uh, there is always room for pharmaceutical intervention. I have seen it work. I understand its practicality, but there are so many things that we have to do as a people outside of masking problems, which right. is the vast majority of what people do. People mask the problem. They hide from it. They run from it, pretend that it's not there. Imagine if you carried a brick with you every day this brick that had all of your problems written on it but you had to physically carry it everywhere you went every single day of your life every moment to the shower to the bathroom to the kitchen to work and back again how long would you carry that physical brick with you before you made a decision to create change so you didn't have to the only difference now is that brick is psychological it is emotional. It is mental. It is something that we carry internally. And so if you want to get rid of that, you have to force yourself into a different understanding of what acceptability is for you, and then do the work to get to the place that you want to go. Mm. And, 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 and utter patience. Patience.
0: Nice. I love all of that. Thank you so much. So my last question to everybody is, uh, if this was your show, which you do have a podcast show, but if you were doing this show, who would be your dream guest and why?
1: If, okay. So can they be dead? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Freddie Mercury.
0: Ooh. Ooh. I like, I like that.
1: hundred percent because I always looked at, I mean, I love Queen. I loved them when I was a kid. I always thought they were so fascinating. I love them because of Wayne's world. I can say that for sure. Without <laughs> Wayne's world, I wouldn't even know who Queen is. And, and, and Freddie would be my choice because you look at what it's like to be a human being who decides to believe in their dream
0: mm. and then
1: do something about it. And there's a lot of people like that. I love Jay-Z, Anthony Bourdain, the list goes on and on and on and on, right? But, but Freddie, larger than life with this innate ability to be unstoppable and unflappable in his belief.
0: Hmm. Nice. That's, I, I love that you brought him in. Um, I would say for this show, I would say Dak Shepard. Do you know who he is?
1: Yeah. He's interesting cat.
0: Yeah, he is. I, I really like his transparency with his past sexual abuse and his addiction. Um, I, I feel, I feel, I grew up with a father that, um, was in AA since before I, before they got me, they adopted me when I was three weeks old. And um, so that's what I knew of him my whole life. And I feel like what I saw of AA was kind of like this sobriety, but being sober without happiness. And I'm not saying that Mm -hmm. my father's not happy, but I feel like that was kind of the theme of sobriety for so long. It's like, it was hard to be sober and I'm just feeling this really big shift in sobriety about sobriety and the pursuit of happiness because mm-hmm. I see so many people just doing sobriety, not even from addiction, but just to really get in full relationship with themselves without any distractions. And um, I like watching his evolution and the his curiosity from, I feel like that's come from his process of becoming sober. Yeah. yeah and that's so, beautiful. I like to listen to him. He's pretty funny too. I mean... <laughs> I like somebody who can make me laugh. You know, when we're talking about heavy stuff, like you can't have the dark without the light, you know. And so I feel like it's important that we remember that laughter is medicine as well. Even when we're going through our hardest shit, we all go through something and we're all working on ourselves, I hope. And um, but I hope we can laugh at times, too, because that's important for our spirit.
1: Agreed. 100 percent.
0: Michael, thank you so much for doing this kind of last minute and I really appreciate it. You have such a profound presence and I wanted to get your voice out there for my listeners because I think that your work is needed. It's incredible. And I hope that anyone looking for some support gets a hold of you if they're resonating with, with what you're doing, with what you're putting out. So let's go ahead and let us know where they can find you and give us your deets.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, ThinkUnbroken.com spelled exactly how it sounds. Um, and I'm on all the socials at Michael unbroken
0: at Michael unbroken. Yeah. And your website is really fantastic because you went through and and you asked all these questions and answered them. And I just, I found it to be really encompassing of like, what I need to know about what you're doing. And I like that. I like that full transparency. And I feel like people really will get to know who you are and how to work with you that way. So thank you for, for such a great website as well.
1: Yeah, of course. It took me so long to write that, but I was like, how do I, because here's the thing. I, I wanted people, if they wanted to reach out to me for coaching, understand what they were about to get themselves into.
0: You absolutely did it. I commend Perfect. you on it because God, if thanks. I, if I was going to reach out, I would know what we're going to be doing. So I it, love that. It
1: was a labor for sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> again, thank you so much for you're what you're doing. Thank you for changing the world and being a part of it and it being such a big light um, for so many people have a beautiful weekend, a beautiful day, and I'm sure our paths will cross again.
1: Yes. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon.
0: Yes. Cheers. All
1: right, bye.
0: And with that, Let's normalize the struggles, celebrate the quirks, and lean into the light. From myself and Bezos the Brave. <laughs> Happy Wild Heart Revolution, friends.
1: The question I have for you, though, which is really important, is um, can I curse? It is sure. in my MO. Okay, cool.
0: Yeah. It is just who it. I
1: am. And sometimes people are like, please don't.
0: No, I want you to Your do it. You. you be you. Cool. Perfect. All right. (laughs) You've got some practice at it, right? Yeah, I do.